well. We welcome you here this morning. You know, I'm, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not really one to back down from a challenge. Um, so, uh, Pastor Corey seems to um, have this feeling that he can grow a pretty good beard. Well, um, I think that uh, by show of hands, all right, we'll do it this way. By show of hands, um, who, who thinks uh, Pastor Corey and I should both shave our faces clean? <laughs> and, then, um, and then we'll start and we'll do, um, we'll do a, an official uh, conduit church poll six months later. Who has the more biblically magnificent beard? <laughs> if you think, if that's something that you would like to see, go ahead and raise your hands. All right. So, um, I mean, if he's not scared. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Jeez. Well, um, we're week two. I could just go on. Oh boy, <laughs> do I got things to say? Um, we're uh, we're in week two of our series, our core value series, our series um, in our code, the things that we uh, the things that we live by here as a community of faith, but also the things that we you know believe are that we hold you know personally close to our hearts. Um, last week was uh, that Jesus is everything and that the gospel changes it all. And we continue to stand on that. We'll continue to stand on that. Um, this week is uh, the statement, God, God wrote a book and that the Bible is boss. Now, I don't know if we completely mean that the Bible is boss, like in an 80s way, like, yeah, man, that's, that shirt is boss. Or if it's like boss as in, like, in charge of you, I think it's kind of both. But um, when we say that God wrote a book, and we say that the Bible is boss, we mean, we mean some things that uh, need unpacking in that, in that statement and in that belief, because it's much, it's much deeper than... Um, it's much, it's, it's much deeper than it appears on the surface, but it's also uh, very simple, okay? Unarguably, unarguably, the, most, the Bible is the most talked about, uh, the most studied, the most researched, the most worshipped, the most maligned, the most revered, the most criticized book in all of human history. Without a doubt, 
it's not really something that anyone argues. That at the center of almost all controversy that exists around Christianity, uh, it centers around the Scripture. It centers around um, this book that we call uh, the Bible. And so we had, um, uh, not, it was not a difficult decision for us to say that uh, for us here at Conduit, that God wrote a book. And to say it um, pretty clearly and pretty succinctly like that, because it, it means something for who we are, how we go about living. What's really the point What's really the point of having uh, a core value or a code that, is, that, is, um, that encompasses the Bible? Well, here's something interesting about Scripture itself, is that we spend 100% of our sermons, of our, of our teaching, um, preaching from the content of Scripture itself. Meaning we... We pick a passage, we pick a book of the Bible, and we walk through it, and we, we teach on it for sometimes a really long time, and sometimes a short time. But very, very seldom do we actually talk about the book itself. You know what I mean? There's a difference between um, unpacking the content of a particular scripture verse and talking about the whole thing or the whole book in and of itself. Its purpose in our lives together. Its, its role and its function and its power in, in your spiritual life. We're going to do a little bit of that today, okay? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible as a whole. Uh, for 2,000 some odd years, Christians have believed that God has revealed himself to humanity in essentially two key ways or in two key pathways. Christians have believed throughout the course of um, church history that God has revealed himself most clearly in Jesus Christ, his son. That if you want a picture of who God is, if you want to draw close to the heart of God, if you want to if you want to know the heartbeat of God, the breath of God, the words of God, the thoughts of God, the actions of God, the relationships of God, that look no further than Jesus. Jesus is everything. But equally significant, God has chosen to reveal himself to us in his word. Now, here, here comes the rub type of thing. No one argues about Jesus. Very seldom does anyone argue that, that Jesus reveals to the world who God is. That the, that the life of Jesus is, a, as the writer of, as Paul says in Colossians, that the, that, the right, that, that the life of Jesus is an exact representation of God. That all of deity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ himself. 
Very, very seldom does anyone make that argument. But I can tell you what, there has literally been wars fought, blood shed, relationships destroyed over the words of Scripture. Sometimes in very small, minute places and details, and sometimes on a larger, much more grand scale. And so, when we come to something like core values or a code, and we say that, hey, we, we stand right, right behind Jesus' everything, is that God wrote a book. That the Bible for us is boss. We make a, we make a pretty, um, we make a pre- in, in the scope of human history, and the controversy surrounding this book, we make a pretty bold statement. A statement that we often take for granted. Statements that in other countries, even now, in 2018, would, um, would get you thrown in jail. So, I don't take it lightly. Um, I also want to deal with it responsibly um, and I've learned a lot about myself and my own calling as a, as a pastor and a preacher and a teacher throughout the course of my ministry and kind of where my mind kind of naturally gravitates towards or the kind of the, the natural current of the way that I think theologically or think about God or think about the scripture and I I thought maybe I should try to avoid a little bit of that this morning, but I just felt like, you know, God was saying, this is the way I've made you, this is the way I've I've made you to think, this is the way that I've, you know, this is the way I've created you, so just, you know, like, go with the flow, and, uh, and, and do what I've prepared you to do, so, so some of this may seem, um, a little, um, not educational, in the sense of a negative way, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the reliability of Scripture this morning, the historical reliability of Scripture, how Scripture was formed, why it was formed in that way, what Scripture is and what Scripture isn't, and how we go through um, how we go through understanding the dynamics that are at play when we pick up the Bible and read it as I'm going to challenge you to do. Um, now granted, there's not, we're not going to be able to get through every last single um, question or issue or point of, uh, point of clarification or point of controversy in Scripture. And all I can say is that um, if, you, if you stick with us faithfully over time, um, you know, we'll do our best to unpack the totality of uh, some of these questions that you have. Why? Um, why? What's the point of this value? What's the point of this code? That God wrote a book and that the Bible is boss. Well, there's spiritual reasons that we talk about Scripture. There's 
there's a spiritual kind of compartment or dimension in which we kind of throw all of our um, conversation about Scripture in. And then there's um, kind of a more, a more practical compartment over here that we're going to talk about. So we're going to start over um, talking about the, the spiritual component of Scripture. What, what it is and what it's not and why is the idea that God wrote a book and that the Bible is boss, why does that, why does that sting or prick at the heart of uh, almost every human being? Um, and I think, it's for a few, I think it's for a few reasons. And while we might not see it as spiritual, it actually is very spiritual. It's just the, the idea of, um, of something having authority over us. The, 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 way, the way in which... Scripture strips us of our autonomy and, and, and places spiritual authority over our lives, over our beliefs, over our thinking, over our action is inherently offensive to the sinful heart of man. The issue of authority in your life and in mine is deeply rooted in our sinfulness. In fact, so much so that authority, the, even the word authority, has essentially become a swear word. Right? No one likes to talk about authority unless they're the ones that have it. Right? I don't want to talk about there being any authority up here. Right? There can be authority, like there can be shared authority, and there can be th authority that I have over other things, even my own life, right? Even my own belief, even my own thought, even my own action. But as soon as someone or something strips away the, uh, my autonomy of thought, my autonomy of practice, my autonomy of belief, all of a sudden, right, my, like I want to lash out at that thing. It's not always a bad thing, okay? I'm not talking about it as universally negative. But what I, what I am saying is that, is that the, the um, implication that Scripture comes from God is something that, that begs a question inside of us about authority. Um, now, listen, no offense to anyone who loves Frank Sinatra, which I would assume is most people, okay? Um, but Sinatra sang this song, I don't know if he wrote it or not, but he sang this song that kind of really um, pointedly sums up the human desire for autonomy and authority over ourselves. It's a song called My Way. Right? And the lyrics go something like this. It says, um, I listened to it in the car on the way here this morning because I thought, well, maybe I'll sing it. And then I was like, nah. <laughs> nope. Yeah, yeah, nah. Nope. I'll stay in my lane on that one. Uh, but 
Sinatra's song, My Way, um, says, And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full, I've traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way. Wow, I mean, there's certain lines in that where you could be like, yeah, Sinatra, do it your way. All about you, right? I'm not picking out Sinatra and I'm not even saying that he wrote this song to lash out of the authority of the Bible over top of him. I'm not saying anything like that. What I'm saying is that even within popular culture, there is this idea that, hey, you know, I am in charge of me. No one tells me what to think. No one tells me what to believe. There is, there, like, I am the last and final say. I am the period at the end of the sentence that is my life. William Henley wrote this really famous poem, and man, I would love to love it, because it's just like, it, it feels good to love it. He wrote this poem called Invictus. You know this poem? Super famous poem, I'll read it to you. William Ernest Henley said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but not unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. William Ernest Henley thought a lot of himself. Um, and I think it's an awesome poem. And if I was maybe a football co coach, I would read it in the locker room at halftime when we were losing or something like that, Right? But when it comes to a grand, overarching principle about life and death and truth and authority and autonomy, I have not met a human being who does not have deeply seated within them the tendency to strike out, to lash back, to shrink away from any authority over them except their own. 
comes as an insatiable urge to be our own masters. To be the captain of our own ships. The human will uh, is generally very rigid, very stiff, right? right let me, I'll, I'll, I'll get to, I'll ask the question um, and it'll get to my point. Does anyone in here not consider themselves an opinionated person? Right? When everyone said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm just really opinionated. As if there are people who are not opinionated, right? As if there are people who walk around and be like, ah, uh, yeah, I believe that, sure. What? I mean, like, I don't have any opinions, I don't have any beliefs, I don't have any, you know, guiding principles that kind of um, help me walk, uh, you know, my everyday life, you know? No, the, the human will is by nature, by, by sinful nature, uh, stiff, uh, rigid, we, we believe something and we hold on to it, right? And the reality is that the Word of God, the spiritual nature of the Word of God, at every turn, at every period, at every punctuation mark, every word, every spirit-breathed word of Scripture seeks to soften and mold and change and bend, and renew, and redeem every part of who we are. In fact, Paul wrote this in a letter to his protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, probably, possibly, the, perhaps, I would guess, the most popular um, portion of Scripture about Scripture itself, right? And he says... Um, that the, uh, that, where am I? Verse 14, I think is what we have it started at. Um, but as for you, he says, dear Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now the rigidity of the human soul, the firmness of the human mind, entrenched in our belief that I am the captain of my own ship, I will believe what I want to believe, and if I don't like it, then I'll just white it out from my life, right? And then we have, standing in opposition, um, this, uh, this book that is for millennium, believed to be inspired by God, uh, saying that the very purpose of it is to take the rigidity of our own autonomous authority over our lives and teach it and rebuke it 
and correct it and train it into righteousness. You could not have a fundamentally more oppositional book to who you and I naturally are. And so we come to a, we come to a um, place where we have a code or a value that says um, God wrote a book and the Bible is boss and we ask the question, well, why is that important or why does over millennium has, that, has this book been such a controversial, absolute, like, blood spilt, relationships ruined, families ripped apart? Like, why has it become, why is it so difficult to talk about? Even in church. Like, you think that this would be the one safe place to talk about it, right? I mean, it just stands to reason. We all kind of come with the assumption that, hey, you know, it's, if any place is safe to talk about what's in the book, it's probably the church. And it's not. Even within the midst of our own fellowship, this book has become divisive. It has caused breaks in relationship. It has caused arguments. It has caused, it has caused one person to look at another person and say, yeah, you believe that? Hmm. Man, there's something, there's something wrong. But here, here's what, uh, here's what um, my, here's what my stance is. It's not this that is wrong. It's not this. There's something fundamentally um, flawed about who we are. Scripture calls it sin the hardness of our heart, the desires to be our own authority. So if our human will is generally rigid and stiff, and if there is a book that requires a pliable, teachable soul, uh, that it's no... That it's no um, it's no surprise why it has become so divisive. Now, just take a minute and pray with me. Let's pray. Lord, um, Uh, approach, Father, with gentleness and tenderness and understanding.
uh, your spirit and your word this morning. And there is so much um, that could be said about your word. There's so much that could be said about the ways in which it reveals your heart to people. Uh, So much can be said about how it's taught and how it's understood. Lord, we we only want to hear you. Lord, we have no need or desire to hear from any half-wit preacher. But Lord, only to hear and see your heart. Only to hear and see your desire for us. Lord, may we surrender, even in the next 20 minutes or so, any hardness or animosity, any skepticism or unbelief. Lord, may our ears be open. May our hearts be receptive. Lord, may our spirits be pliable to your word be pliable to your own spirit that we might that we might be changed in Jesus name amen you know we have an enemy that would like nothing more um that would like nothing more to distract us from truth. That would like nothing more um, uh, to take the promises of God to twist, to remove, to um, completely, um, to completely deform the things that God wants to do in us and through us. Uh, scripture says in places like Ephesians chapter six that that we wrestle. That the heart of man wrestles, um, not against flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual battle being waged around us. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, um, that we have an enemy who has come uh, not to give us life, not to reveal the real truth to us, but to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God desires to do in us. Peter, in one of his epistles, 1 Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, um, warns his readers that the enemy, Satan, prowls around us all like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the enemy is prowling. And the enemy desires that not one word of the Lord, not one breathed, inspired word either from his spirit or from his word, would find your ears open. And so at every turn possible, he will plug your ears. At every turn possible, he will distract you with lies. An awareness of that, vitally important. Not a fear. We have no reason to fear. No reason to fear. God is good. Jesus is everything. The gospel changes it all. The Lord is eager and willing and ready to reveal himself fully in and through his word to you. If you are ready to hear him.
Now, um, I believe, uh, uh, my personal belief is that the church over time has been fairly, um, not necessarily conduit, the church, the big C church, has been fairly um, irresponsible in the way that we have taught Scripture. In the way that we have given people an understanding of what Scripture is. That Scripture is simply to be a thing that is believed but not understood. You know, you just believe it, right? We got these words here, and um, we got these stories here, and listen, church, you just need to believe it. Don't worry about understanding it. Don't worry about how it was written, when it was written. Um, don't, don't worry about the, the, the way that it got to this form right now. Just, just believe it, and you will be okay. Now, in principle, right, I believe that's true, right? When we place our faith in the Word of God, I believe, and my personal life experience has shown that God is faithful to His Word when it is believed and followed, okay? But over generations, the idea that belief but no understanding is all that is necessary has done a huge disservice to the mind of the Christian, which has completely drained out the vitality of belief that comes when we live through the power of Scripture. And so, one of my actions is to help you understand what this is and what it is not. And there's all kinds of words that we could throw, words that you've heard all the time, right? We can, we can throw out fancy theological terms all day like um, inspiration, um, inerrancy, infallibility, interpretation, right? Um, context, genre, the canon, right? All words that we've heard used before in relationship to Scripture. I'm going to talk just about a few of these things, okay? Just to help get us maybe a, a, a little bit of perspective, all right? Um, first thing that we can understand about Scripture is um, that it was not, it is not um, necessarily one book that you sit down and you start at the beginning and you read from Genesis to Revelation and it has a um, cohesive or comprehensive theme that runs from one book to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, uh, for lack of a better term, um, the Bible, Scripture, is a compila compilation of many books. And to use the word book really is kind of deceiving in and of itself because each book kind of sits within its own genre. Who likes to read? Not just the Bible, right? You all like to read the Bible, I know, right? Jesus, faith, the Bible, it's the answer to everything, right? But lots of people like to read. Now, you like to read different kinds of things, right? Some might like to read biographies or autobiographies, or some might like fiction. Some might like science fiction. Some might like nonfiction. Some might like romance. Some like, might, might like, must like, like, suspense or action or whatever the case may be. We have different categories of books that we like to read based upon our own interest. And scripture, we call those things genres, okay? There's genres of books, fiction, nonfiction, science fiction, autobiography, biography, whatever it would be. Scripture is just like that. Genesis, for instance, 
is a different genre or style of writing than the Gospel of Matthew is. And Matthew is much different than the book of Revelation is. And so if you just take one pair of glasses and you throw them on and then you read every single book through the same set of lenses, you'll have a very difficult time navigating its purpose and its meaning throughout all of Scripture. Okay? Here's a for instance. The book of Psalms is really a book of 150 psalms, okay? Um, if you read the book of Psalms at all, you'll, you'll find that it sounds, you read it out loud, the words, they're very poetic, right? They flow, right? And theologians do all kinds of interesting things in studying the original flow of psalms, right? Most of them are songs that were sung and played to, right? And so they have rhyme, they have rhythm. They have, they have structure. They have form. And sometimes they'll talk about things like the sun, the moon, the stars. Sometimes they'll talk about the wind blowing, right? And they'll, they'll relate these types of things, in a, or they'll, they'll talk about these things in a very, in a very poetic fashion, right? Now, if you go to the book of Psalms and try to gain some truth about astronomy because there's psalms or poems about the sun and about the moon and about the stars and about the sky, you're going to come out of that reading with a, with a pretty warped view, a pretty twisted understanding of astronomy, right? Why? Because when a person sits down to write a poem about the sun, they're not intending to communicate to you um, astronomical proof about the sun, right? They're using the sun in a poetic fashion to try and, um, to try and uncover and make beautiful and be rhythmic about Something like the sun, the moon, the stars. That's why when we read the book, for instance, of Matthew, the book of Matthew or the gospel of Matthew looks a lot different, like we said, than the book of Revelation. The book of Matthew is what we call a gospel narrative or a historical narrative. It marks points and conversations and relationships and dialogue that this guy Jesus had in roughly the last three years of his life. But the book of Revelation has almost no person-to-person conversation in this historical from one point to the next point to the next point to the next point type of, um, to the type of conversation. So what is, what is super important when we pick up the Scripture is to understand the purpose from which, by which, a particular book was originally written. Why does, why does this exist? What, why were they writing in the way that they were writing? What can I reasonably learn from this 
based upon its purpose, based upon its genre, based upon what it actually is, not what someone just told me that I just need to believe it. Just believe it. It's not responsible. Because there is a definitive context to each scripture. It was written in an actual time and an actual place by actual people who had actual thoughts about the things that they were writing and why they were writing them and what their purpose was. Now there is always question, always, always, always question, well, all right, pastor, well, here's what I don't like. Some group of people, granted all men, got together in like the third century, and they decided what books were going to be in this Bible, and they bound them all up, and then they passed it off to the church, and I just don't know if I can trust a group of guys, they're probably right, locked up in this room, right, deciding which books were going to be authoritative for the church and which were not, right? It just, it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem reliable to me. It doesn't seem like, like something that should happen. And um, here's what I'm going to say. In general, I agree. All right? Um, but, but understand, all right, the process of what happened. Okay? So we have all of these books from Genesis all the way through Malachi in the Old Testament, from Matthew all the way through Revelation in the New Testament. We ask, well, how do we get the form of the Bible as it is here and right now? Um, we could talk a long time about this. Um, but likely with the way that I preach, it's kind of going to be like, all right, short story long, here we go. Um, throughout the first three centuries of the Christian church, all right? Well, let's, let's talk about it this way. All right. So, Jesus lived, right? He died. He had followers. Um, after Jesus had resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven, um, these people who were following him, let's talk about, let's talk about the Gospels, all right? These people who were following him be like, man, I, like, we got to remember, right? We got we to gotta remember uh, the life of Jesus. I got to remember what he said, right? I got to read. It's so important. I listen to podcasts now, right? And I'm, like, always pausing them and writing down the important things that the person on the podcast says because I don't want to forget it, right? And if I don't write it down right now, it's going to be lost forever. And so these people from their own perspective, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Why do you think the Gospels are kind of all different? Because people are all different, right? They kind of record things differently. We can all watch the very same movie and then go back and write down what happened in the movie. And generally, all of the things are going to be yeah, generally the same. This happened, this happened, this happened, this person, this, this person, this person. But there's going to be some details that are a little bit different because you remember different things than I remember in a movie, right? And the gospel writers would do the very same thing, right? And they would write down all these things because they desired to pass them on, right? 
to their children and their children's children. You've got to remember these things about Jesus. You've got to remember these things about Jesus. What an awesome man, the Son of God, this epic moment in history where God sent his Son and the, the will of God was revealed to us. Now, listen. As they wrote them down and they got passed along down the line, like, next child, next child, next child, leader of the church, leader of the church, leader of the church, leader of the church, right? Um, there was this growing use of the gospel accounts in the believing community of Christians. All right? So every time, right? So like every time a new generation came about, I think way back in like 300, all right? 300 AD. They would say, well, uh, I know... My great, 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 great grandfather was a guy who was actually walking with Jesus. So, so I know that, that I can trust the words that he wrote down to be true about Jesus because he was like actually with the guy. And when, and we, when my great, great, great grandfather handed it down to his father, he knew that he could trust it. And when he handed it down to his father, he knew he could trust it because he could see back in time to the point where it was traced to a reliable source. Now, what would happen if somewhere down the line, one of the grandfathers, one of the fathers, tried to, tried to insert a story into their gospel that the rest of the people know didn't happen because they were there. It's like, it's like this, all right? When I die, if, if my kids, if three of my kids write, a, write the story of my life, right? To the best of their understanding, to the best of their memory, to the best of their knowledge, they write down this story, all the details, the conversations, the dialogues, the things that I did, the things that I didn't do, my successes, my, my failures, right? And it's being passed along as the life and history of Cameron Linehart. And then, and they're like, this is it. We know. Why do they know? They know because they lived with me, right? They walked with me. They ate with me. They heard from me. I taught them. Okay? If someone comes from the outside and says, well, um, you know, we're going to write this story about Cameron. And it's completely different than the story of those who lived with me, walked with me, knew me best. What is likely going to happen throughout time to the variant story over here on the outskirts? It's eventually going to what? Go away. Because there's no grounding of it in the reality of those who walked with Christ most closely. Right? So keep that framework in your mind and then jump forward to a point in time in the 4th century. About 325 AD, there was this thing called the Council of Nicaea, where church leaders from all over the known world 
gathered together and said, okay, we're having a little bit of an issue. And the issue is, all of these variant stories about Jesus' life, all of these, all of these um, epistles and letters that, are, that have like this whacked out, way outside the lines theology, like they're, they're starting to creep into um, like prominence. And they're confusing people, and they're causing, um, they're ca- causing division, and they're causing um, difficulty in the life of the church. How do we standardize, essentially, or how do we kind of like, how do we set our mark on the pieces of literature, the accounts, the letters, the epistles, the historical books, all of these things, the, the apocalyptic books, how do we standardize those in a way that is like, all right, this is it. So what they did was that they looked at the way that the church, the believing community, they looked at the things that were sustaining the belief and faith and theology and practice of the church for hundreds of years. They said, okay, for hundreds of years, passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation, the church has understood the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, to be the most reliable, faithful testimonies of Jesus Christ. And when other gospels tried to come in and say, no, 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 this is really how Jesus was, the church, the church... Because they knew the, the, the passed down history said, look, um, no. Just like my kids, right, would be like, hey, look, um, it's all good, but no, that's not how my father was. That's not what he said. That's not what he did. That's not what he was like. That's not what he was all about. All right, and so uh, the council essentially um, wrapped its arms around the gospels, the letters, the epistles, the books in which the church had been using for centuries, and said, "Right, the church has provided already a faithful witness of who Jesus is, the formation of the church." And so we're going to stick with what the church has always used in worship. So it wasn't like some voting process of like, oh, who thinks the Gospel of Mark should get in? And like 71 guys raised their hand, and one guy was like, nope, I don't. And he, and then they won. It was not a voting process. It was a recognition of the authority that the Gospel accounts and letters and epistles already had in the life of the church. Because it was within their worship, within their history, within the generations of what had been passed down that had sustained and grown them in their own faith. Now, when you come even 2,000 years later, you say, well, how can we, how can we trust even the historical reliability of the letters that we have. What if they're, you know, like, what if even the copies that we have, they're not 
they're not legitimate or they're not, you know, they're not, um, you know, they're not real. Um, and this is, this is a, it's an interesting conversation because when we look back into history, okay, there are, there are work, literary, literary works of antiquity that most of the general population, both intellectual and faith-based and not faith-based at all, um, believes are absolutely authentic. Okay? So you have this guy, uh, everyone know who Homer is? Married to Marge, father of Bart, right? No, no Homer, right? The, the ancient Greek writer who wrote things like the Odyssey and the Iliad, these, these works of Greek antiquity. You with me? Yes? If you're with me, say amen. Do we need like a ninth inning stretch type of thing or seventh inning stretch? You can tell I'm a, ba- a baseball fan, right? Mm-hmm. Go sports. Um, so, <laughs> so Homer wrote the Iliad, okay? Homer wrote the Iliad, um, and it is, it, is, it is unarguable, right, that the Iliad is historically reliable, right? It was an actual story written in an actual time by an actual person. Historians agree. Scholars agree. Yeah, we have actual manuscripts of the Iliad, actual copies of the Iliad on parchments, right? On, on, on papyri, on this ancient type of, ancient type of paper, right? And they, they look at something like the Iliad as the perfect example of how there is, of, of the historical reliability and the trustworthiness of the records that, that Christianity has used to form its own scripture, okay? Because a story like the Iliad, it was written, um, it, there's, like, there's like 650 copies or Greek manuscripts um, in existence today of the Iliad. Okay? That's a big number. 650 copies of it. Uh, The Iliad was written um, approximately 800 B.C. So 800 years before Christ it was written. Now, if you say, all right, well, um, when... Was the early, what is the the, early, the latest copy of the Iliad that is actually in existence today? It was written in 800 BC. When was the last one found? Uh, the last one was found uh, about 250 AD. So between the time when it was originally written, 800 BC, and the last one that was found. 250 AD, there spans about a thousand year gap. So that's a long time, right? A thousand years is a long time. If you and I were asked to write down a copy of a story that happened in, I don't know, the 11th century, how um, detailed would that reasonably be? 
The details would be pretty sketchy. The information pretty short. Not very reliable, right? Because of the mere span that existed between when it was original when it originally happened and the last copy that existed, a thousand years. Now, there's 650 copies of the Iliad, so we can all like thumbs up. Yeah, yeah, bro. It happened. It was written. We can trust it. There's no way that many copies would have existed and would have been saved if not, right? In comparison, uh, the New Testament, where there's 650 Greek manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, there are 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The latest copy that we have of any fragment of the New Testament is dated at somewhere between 127 and 130 A.D. To the best of scholarly knowledge, um, the last original writing of the New Testament was somewhere around 90, at the latest, 90 A.D. Meaning, at best, there was a 40-year gap between the final writing and the latest copy. Now, I don't have a great memory, and I'm not a great historian, all right? But if I was asked to write a story about something that happened in 1975-ish, I could probably do it with a lot more accuracy than I could write and record a story that happened in 1100 A.D. Simply because of a, the quantity of time that exists between my account of it and when it actually happened. Um, now, like I said, um, I... I believe that the church has done a really irresponsible job at offering more than just a, hey, grin and believe it type of attitude towards Scripture. Um, I can tell you this much. Um, I have given the better part of my life uh, to studying Scripture. Um, not from a perspective of, well, I already believe it, so I might as well study it. But from a perspective of, if it's worth believing, uh, uncovering, turning over every single rock towards its reliability, towards its faithfulness, uh, will not do any harm, it will only do good. The scripture has never failed me. It has never failed me in life. It has never failed me in faith. It has never failed me in intellect. And I'll tell you this much. There, uh, the truths of Scripture have satisfied some of the most brilliant minds the world has ever known. Um, as the band comes up, I'd like to, uh, to close us out here this morning. Um, I'd like to offer maybe one, um, one, final, one final question, all right? A reflective question, I guess. This is not so much for those who uh, are like, yeah, I, you know, I believe every word of it. 
you know, I have no questions whatsoever. Maybe more for a, um, a skeptical point of view is this. Mm. There are, you know, the, you know the phrase uh, in life, uh, truth is stranger than fiction, right? Truth is stranger than fiction. Or it's too weird not to be true. We say that all the time. You can't make this up, right? It's too crazy, it's too crazy to be false. You couldn't make a story like that up, right? Um, the Bible is like that. The story of Jesus is exactly like that. It's too unlikely. It is literally too unlikely to be false. You have a ragtag, um, you have a ragtag group of teenage fishermen who are given the charge to carry on uh, the most important uh, message to ever hit the ground. Right? You have the, the hero of the story uh, killed in a shameful, um, torturous way. Uh, and, and by the way, he wasn't born to royal blood. He wasn't prominent. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't rich. He was poor. He was unassuming. He had no necessary or appreciable skills, as far as we could tell. How about this? How about the fact that um, a story written in the ancient world, gospel accounts written in the ancient world, a society that was unapologetically um, patriarchal, meaning women had very little um, existential value, and at the center of the story are all of these prominent women who served alongside of Jesus and served in the early church and, and grew in the ministry of Jesus. And then um, at the, in probably the most decisive moment, most critical moment in all of the gospel where Jesus comes bursting out of the cave, right, proving to everyone Proving to everyone that, hey, I told you I'd come back. I told you I would come back from the dead, right? I told you there was going to be a resurrection. You would think that, that Jesus, in order to get his point across, would want like Pontius Pilate there, right? The high priest, a, a valuable and reliable witness to the, to the central moment of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And instead... Who were the first witnesses? The first witnesses were women. Individuals who in the ancient world would have been, their testimony would have been like, nah, nope. Nope, didn't, nope, don't trust it, sorry. Give me a guy who saw Jesus and then we'll believe it. Unconvenient truth, right? Right? Um, unless what? Unless that's just the way it actually happened, right? And the gospel writers were so interested not in creating a story that would be palatable and easy for everyone to believe from generation to generation to generation, but were most concerned with just writing down what actually happened. 
truth. I think that the story is too unlikely to not be true. And if I had to be really honest with you, say like, um, the fact that God uses a guy like me to point others to him is too unlikely not to be true. The time and time and time again, the Lord takes, God takes circumstances that to the world seem so ridiculous and flips them on their head and uses them to redeem people, to redeem families, to redeem cultures, to redeem generations. It's too unlikely not to be true. Pray with me.